Sarah Spreming, and this is Cop Dog Radio, a place where I will share my stories, cases, and considerations when it comes to all things dog sports and dog training. I hope you enjoy it. Coming to you from the road again um, on my way home from Sinosport World Games in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Iggy and I had a really fantastic time there running hard and you know putting it all on the line and just really enjoying our sport. It's absolutely one of my favorite events um, of the year and I think if you've never been to it you should definitely put it on your list of events to attend. Um, This is our part three of my effective behavior change series. So this is going to wrap it up today. Um, I think we're always talking about effective behavior change, but the final topic is going to be reinforcement. So the first couple of topics were, uh, the first one was about replacement behaviors and then the next one was antecedent arrangements. So um, episode one was on replacement behaviors, what makes an effective replacement behavior, um, what helps you actually replace those pesky unwanted behaviors with other behaviors. And then part two was about antecedent arrangements, which is basically management. It's talking about manipulating the environment instead of the dog. And today we're going to talk about the god of behavior change, which is reinforcement. Um, all behavior is driven by reinforcement and you might be sitting there thinking this is a really broad topic. Well, it is. So we're going to talk reinforcement specifically as it pertains to canine behavior change. Um, and also as it, as, as I would like everybody to understand it so that we can all be utilizing it a little bit better because I think a lot of people say, you know, I use positive reinforcement and they say that because they're giving the dog a cookie or they're giving the dog a toy. Um, and while that's true, you should understand that reinforcement, either positive or negative is always at play if behavior is changing and growing. So reinforcement understand is defined by its function. And that means that, um, if behavior is growing, if behavior is happening, reinforcement is at play. Reinforcement is what drives behavior. That seems overly simplistic, I think, but it helps us to understand what motivates behavior. I think really often we want to assign arbitrary reasons um, to our dog's behavior. So for instance, our dog breaks a start line stay, it's because they're too excited about agility, or it's because they don't have enough impulse control, or it's because you know, there was a dog behind them barking, or it's because, you know, a dog walked into the building that they don't like, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you guys. The answer is always reinforcement. Um, If behavior happens one time, you can pretty much call it a fluke and you can throw it out. That's why I don't get too excited about a behavior the first time it happens. I make note of it and I think about um, what I can do if that behavior, if, you know, the same scenario occurs to try to encourage a different behavior, but I just don't get too excited. If a behavior happens more than one time, then obviously reinforcement was present for the behavior the first time and is probably still present. And so I need to, um, adjust a few things. 
thinking of behavior as being caused by external stimuli is thinking behavior is caused by antecedents. So it's thinking that, you know, again, a dog that my dog doesn't like walked into the building and therefore my dog broke his start line doesn't really make sense. Was that the order of operations? Of course it was. But the reinforcement, whatever it was, that followed the behavior um, is what will drive that behavior to happen in the future. So try to think of reinforcement as the be-all, end-all, as the motivating factor for all things, because it is. Um, For all behaviors that are happening, reinforcement is present. And we want to be thinking about that and being smart about that. So in dog training specifically, I think, you know, where we fall short is we don't provide ourselves with enough um, of a wide array of reinforcers that we can use. So the really obvious reinforcer that comes to mind is food. Food is the most obvious and usable primary reinforcer that we can have access to. Dogs need to eat to live, therefore it acts as a primary reinforcer for them. But we, as dog trainers, have all met dogs who were less keen on food than other dogs. I know some dogs that would absolutely come out of their skin for a Cheerio. I was feeding a friend's golden retriever um, air cookies this weekend out of a Cheeto bag. I was holding a Cheeto bag, and I was reaching in, and then I was handing him nothing. I was giving him an air cookie out of that bag, and he was really excited, and I could have, I think, taught him to do anything um, with the Cheeto air cookies versus uh, same friend, her border collie. If I had tried to offer her an air Cheeto or perhaps even a real Cheeto, she would have looked at me and said, that is not food. Um, and food is a primary reinforcer for me, but that is not food. And she wouldn't be wrong. Um, food for a dog is primarily going to be animal protein based. Um, and so we want to be thinking about that when we are thinking about appropriate food reinforcers. I try to use meat-based foods that has, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one is just that my dogs can only consume so many calories in a day and I would like each calorie to, um, contribute rather than detract from the nutritional picture that I'm trying to create for them. Um, so I try to use things that are nutritionally sound for them as treats, but it's also just that they work harder for that stuff. And the reason they do is again, because it's acting as a primary reinforcer for them. So again, how, so how do we know if something is a reinforcer or not? I've heard people say it all the time. My dog doesn't find toys reinforcing or my dog doesn't find food reinforcing or in this situation, my dog doesn't find food reinforcing understand that, um, behavior is what tells us if something is a reinforcer or not. So a lot of times in my seminars, a dog will fail to respond to a cue and I will instruct the handler to give the dog food anyway. Typically I want the handler to give food in a specific way, a way that helps the dog's emotional state return to a place that is more workable for us. Um, so oftentimes I will have them do what I call a scatter, which is just drop a handful of food on the floor after a missed cue. Now 
this does make people's heads spin and I don't blame them for that because if you understand that the dog missed the cue, so you said, let's say you said sit and the dog did not and then I want you to throw food on the ground, it really does look like you are paying the non-sit. Um, it sure looks that way and that could happen could be paying for the non-sit and the non-sit could repeat, but that is the kicker. If the non-sit repeats, then reinforcement for the non-sit is at play. In my seminars, 100% of the time thus far, the non-sits have um, decreased actually, and the sit response has increased when we've utilized this. So what that means is reinforcement is not at play for the non-sit, when we do the scatter. And I believe that to be because the dog, um, due to its emotional state or perhaps due to its, you know, past history, its training, didn't even really hear the cue, didn't even really register the cue. And so that's why the ABC relationship antecedent, that's the cue behavior. That's the sit C, uh, or non sit. And then C the consequence, the food being thrown on the floor, is not at play for them because they didn't notice or register the antecedent. So that's really possible. A hundred percent of the time though, the dog does a non-sit, the handler does a scatter, the handler recues the sit, and now the dog is able to sit, which tells me that we did not reinforce the non-sit. Um, and we also got the dog back into a thinking state. So we're kind of back in the game. So that's understanding reinforcement as being, as, as being defined by its function, not defined by us or our actions. A hot dog is just a hot dog until it makes behavior happen. Then it's a reinforcer. Okay. So think about this in those terms and think about reinforcers as being these, you know, powerful forces that are always at play as opposed to thinking of them as, um, items that we have in our bag. So don't think of the bag of liver as reinforcement, uh, or reinforcers. Think of the bag of liver as a tool that you might use to reinforce behavior rather than, um, thinking of it as, of it as something that your dog likes. Think of the liver as being what drives the behavior that you are now about to train, um, as opposed to thinking of it in other ways that might be less helpful to you. So when you think of that bag of liver as being something that's in your arsenal, um, as something that you can use as a tool, and then you're really starting to think along the lines of a smart trainer, because you're starting to understand that reinforcers um, are tools that we build and create. So primary reinforcers are always in existence. And another primary reinforcer that is really just as valuable to our dogs is water. They have to drink water to survive just as much as they have to eat to survive. And in fact, they have to drink water more often than they have to eat to survive. So just by survival mechanisms alone, uh, we could say that water might be a more valuable primary reinforcer, but I don't know very many people who are using water to actually build behavior. I don't necessarily recommend using water to build behavior. I think water should be available to your dog 24 seven all the time, but let's talk a little bit about why, um, we might not be able to use water as a reinforcer 
for our dogs just right off the bat without a little bit of work, even though it's a primary reinforcer. The reason is that our dogs need to understand this ABC contingency, this, um, you know, human, human gives a cue, I give a behavior, um, then human doles out a consequence. They kind of need to understand that as a concept because they don't come hardwired under hardwired to understand that. What they come hardwired to understand is that behavior yields consequences. And I don't think that they could articulate that. It's just that behavior by its very nature acts like that. Behavior is a part of evolution. Um, animals behave in order to gain access to the primary reinforcers they need to survive. So behavior is an evolutionary mechanism. Um, and so when we say to the dog, there are primary reinforcers available to you and your behavior that seems like it has nothing to do with those can get you there. We're saying to them, um, to to understand a concept that isn't one they already know. So to try to simplify this a little bit, understand that if your dog walks up to the water bowl in the kitchen and then drinks water, we can assume that walking into the kitchen, walking to the water bowl is a reinforced behavior under the antecedent of the dog feels thirsty. So the dog feels thirsty, they walk to the kitchen they find water. So the antecedent is the dog feels thirsty. Um, the behavior is they walk into the kitchen where the water bowl is. And then the consequence is they drink, they drink water. So water is had. So the dog doesn't, you know, couldn't say to us if they could speak that, um, the behavior of walking into the kitchen was reinforced by the water. But that is what happened, and we know that because the ABC contingency occurs and the behavior repeats itself. So if we said we could teach the dog instead that when they feel thirsty, they should ring a bell and we will provide them water. But that would require training, whereas the dog walking into the kitchen and drinking water requires no training. If we taught the dog that water was available only through humans, I'm again, don't do this. <laughs> Dogs should have water all the time. If we taught the dog that, wa that water was available through humans and that they could get us to give them water by behaving in certain ways, they would learn that concept and they would learn it quickly. And that would be what I would call um, producing a reinforcement strategy. So a reinforcement strategy is um, providing a reinforcement based on certain behaviors and showing the animal what the strategy is. So, um, the way brilliant dog trainer, Leslie McDevitt, I just heard her put this, um, put it this way in Hannah Brannigan's podcast. Um, she said the dog needs to understand that there's a system and then they need to understand that they can work the system, but they first have to understand that there's a system and these systems are what I call reinforcement strategies. And the more reinforcement strategies you have taught your dog, the more effective you can be at behavior change and the more efficient you can be at behavior change. So let's look at a few of these reinforcement strategies that I have taught my dogs that I have found to be useful in behavior change. One of the biggest ones that I have found to be useful is essentially showing my dogs that 
access to freedom, which there's some evidence to suggest that control um, over one's own environment is a primary reinforcer, and I would absolutely agree with that theory um, based on my work with dogs and based on my own work with mental health. Um, you know, control is a primary reinforcer. I think all the control enthusiasts can unite and say that that's absolutely true. And amen and hallelujah and, and etc. Um, so I'm going to call freedom essentially the same thing. So essentially control over one's own environment. Um, and I'm going to say that I have utilized access to freedom or access to control as a primary reinforcer for my dogs. I had to show it to them because it's a little bit like the water sitting in the kitchen. If they don't know that I have the key to it, if they don't know that there's a system and they can work it, then they're just going to do behaviors that come naturally to them. Like walking into the kitchen to get water comes naturally to them versus ringing a bell would not. Pulling on the leash um, is going to come naturally to them to try to get the freedom to run down the trail versus I would like them to walk next to me nicely or maybe do a sustained nose target or something else like that in order to gain access to running down the trail. So I like to show my dogs that there's a system they can get off the leash um, if they understand how to work that system. So I use freedom all the time. Getting let off leash, really interestingly, can be looked at as a positive reinforcer as far as access to freedom. Um, it could also be looked at as a negative reinforcer, which is removal of the leash. So we could decide that the leash, um, we could view the leash as an aversive that the dog was trying to avoid, or we could view the freedom as um, an appetitive stimulus that the dog was trying to acquire. However you want to look at it, reinforcement's happening because behavior's happening. Um, my dog Felix, if he sees an area that he would like to run free in, will sit on a walk and he's essentially asking me to take his leash off. I will typically ask him for another behavior and then take his leash off. And then I have a cue that means he may now go run. So it's not just the leash coming off, which is why I think, um, probably we're look, we're going to more accurately look at this as a positive reinforcer as access to freedom, because as soon as the leash comes off, nothing really changes. And I do a whole lot of just leash off, do a bunch of behaviors, leash back on so that my dogs understand that the leash coming off itself is not a cue to do anything. And then they've got a cue that means you can go run now. So he does what I would like him to do. I take his leash off. I ask him for a sustained nose target or some other kind of control behavior. Um, and then I tell him that he can go run. So using freedom as a reinforcer, is a reinforcement strategy and it's a good idea and it's one that people should probably be using more often. Um, here's what's cool about that. You all know if you listen to my podcast or you read my blogs that I'm a huge fan of giving dogs a lot of freedom in their life. I like dogs to have a lot of time to run off leash and be dogs. I'm not a huge fan of extended uh, crate time for dogs. I like them to have as much freedom as possible. And What's interesting about that then is that my dogs are going to have that freedom one way or the other, but through my training and through, you know, just being a smart trainer, I can also utilize that freedom as 
uh, a reinforcer for me so that I can, so that I can basically increase the probability of behaviors that I like to see. So I look at it like food. My dogs are going to be fed every single day. They're going to eat and they're going to eat well every day. I don't think this comes as a surprise to anyone, but it has existed in dog training for a long time and in animal training for a long time, the concept of caloric restriction. So basically denying the animal of its caloric needs, um, essentially to make food more important and to make food as a reinforcement strategy, as, as a reinforcer or food use as a reinforcement strategy, more, more readily accessible, uh, by the people, the trainers at play. And so what is important there is that I see these things as rights. I, I think that the dog has right, a right to nutrition. I think the dog has a right to um, freedom as well. But that doesn't mean that I can't use those things to my advantage. It's just that I don't deny them those things in the meantime while I work on it. So where does this come in um, as far as behavior change is concerned? Well, anytime we've got access to reinforcers, meaning that we've built reinforcement strategies around these things that the dog desires, we have more flexible um, ability to change the behaviors that we see. So let's say the dog, again, pulls on leash because probably they would like more access to freedom. Probably they'd like to run faster, move faster, run down the trail. I could probably teach my dog to walk nicely on a leash by utilizing freedom as a reinforcer um, better and faster than I could teach my dog to walk nicely on leash for food, especially in that scenario. I don't know about you, but I've got a couple of dogs who, when freedom is waved in their face, when running down a trail or a beach especially is waved in their face, the most important thing to them suddenly is running down the trail or at the beach. And food becomes a non-reinforcer. So food has less and less effect over their behavior when their more important primary reinforcer is present. So this kind of comes back to the you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs or, you know, whatever hierarchy of needs that you might want to consider. But think of it like this. If the dog needs food and they need water and they need freedom, if they've had food and water today, but they've not yet had freedom, it might be reasonable for them to be disinterested in your hot dogs, um, or your steak or something really great while on the beach. Um, another way to think of it might be that if the dog is thirsty, if you have actually withheld water, they probably don't want your freeze dried liver. They probably want water. And so the more reinforcement strategies you have built around different reinforcers that your dog, um, finds important that your dog behaves to access during his daily life, the easier you can just kind of jump from reinforcer to reinforcer to affect whatever behavior you want to affect. Toys are definitely in this category of something that 
requires reinforcement strategies. I think food is probably the simplest thing that we can go ahead and start using right off the bat um, and affect behavior right off the bat with most animals in front of us. Toys, technically secondary reinforcers, technically they themselves have um, very little reinforcing quality to them. Um, a tennis ball is pretty much just a tennis ball until you throw it. I do understand that some dogs like to shred them or chomp them or whatever, but most dogs like to chase them. That's why they are popular reinforcers for a lot of people. But there are plenty of dogs who, you know, once they see a tennis ball can no longer comply with basic cues because they're overwhelmed with their desire for the tennis ball and they don't understand that there's a system. They don't understand that they can make you give them the tennis ball by doing behaviors that don't come naturally to them. We have to build reinforcement strategies into our toys if we're going to use them as effective reinforcers. Um, I work with people all the time who have not done this effectively. They are trying to use toys as reinforcers, specifically often in agility, and yet they have not built reinforcement strategies up around their toys. And so what they're producing instead is a lot of behaviors that they don't care for. They're producing conflict-driven uh, behaviors like the dog takes off with the toy every time they give it to them and does, you know, three laps before returning to work, which is not very efficient. Um, or, you know, maybe even the dog has translated this to their leash and will actually grab their leash at the end of the run and then run amok um, throughout the arena, which is again, not sustainable and not something that people can use for very long. So just handing the dog a toy and doing that from the beginning is not going to be an effective way to utilize toys and it's actually getting in the way of a lot of people's training in dog agility especially. So a more effective way to use toys or basically to build reinforcement strategies around toys would be essentially to you know use consistent marker signals right and then have a consistent set of rules surrounding the toys and when I say rules understand that I don't mean um, that you control the toy all the time I just mean that the dog understands once again that there's a system and that they know how to work the system so my dogs understand that certain markers mean to take advantage of certain toys and they mean and they understand that those markers then indicate to the dog that that toy is kind of live for play, live for reinforcement. In the same sense that a manners minder or a pet tutor, so one of your food dispensing uh, training tools, sitting out in the middle of the arena means nothing until it beeps. I would like a toy sitting in the middle of the arena to mean nothing until I give a certain signal that means that toy is now live. Um, and ready to be used and ready for play. So that would be um, an effective reinforcement strategy surrounding toys that we could all use a little bit better. Another reinforcement strategy that I've utilized is one that I just mentioned, which is using what I call a food robot. So your food dispensing training tools, the most popular being the pet tutor, um, that's my favorite, or the treat and train slash manners minder is kind of less expensive model. Uh, the pet tutor is my favorite because it doesn't jam, essentially. Um, the other ones definitely do. 
and so you can get some ineffectiveness, but neither, neither are perfect. Using a food robot for training is something that requires training in and of itself. So anytime something actually needs training in order to be usable, then, then we're really talking reinforcement strategy. We're really talking, um, reinforcement that you've put some work into. So using a food robot means that the dog has to understand that first of all, the beep that the robot makes means the robot is now producing food and that they can make the beep happen. So if the dog doesn't understand either of those things, then the robot means nothing for you. And there are certainly plenty of dogs who only see the robot as something that spits food out periodically. For instance, if you use the robot only to keep your dog quiet in a crate or on a station, then they probably just think the robot spits out food sometimes. And if I just hang out quietly by the robot, it spits out food sometimes. And that's a reinforcement strategy too. But if I want my dog to understand that acting on its environment or um, offering behaviors or doing what I ask, makes the robot spit out food, then I have to show that to him. And that's another reinforcement strategy that I might employ. So again, know that, you know, the, the wider array of reinforcers that you have at your fingertips, the more easily you can affect behavior change, the more easily you can affect, um, or you can produce behaviors that you would like to be seeing. So it's really smart for us with our performance dogs to be early on introducing multiple different reinforcement strategies so that they're starting to understand, like Leslie McDevitt says, that there's a system and that they can work the system. We want them working the system. We want them working it all the time. We just want a system that also works for us. That's how we can be smart about that. So I hope you guys enjoyed this series on effective behavior change. I certainly enjoyed recording it. Um, it helped to fill some of my long hours on the road. I hope that you will join us next time. And I hope that you will discuss this episode on the Cog Dog Radio Facebook page. Just search for Cog-Dog Radio on Facebook and you will find it. If you like it, then you will see the podcast as it comes out every week and you can go ahead and have a discussion with other contact radio listeners on that page thanks for listening Thank you for listening to Cog Dog Radio. If you've got questions or suggestions, you can shoot them over to cogdogradio at gmail.com. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. See you next time.